All right, I hope you're feeling welcomed, loved, appreciated. It's good to be back with you. I missed you guys last Sunday, but I know Brian did a great job, and I want to thank him for speaking last Sunday. Yeah, it's a great blessing. So many great blessings. Romans chapter 8 this morning as we continue our series in the book of Romans. We're going to begin at verse 18. While you're turning there, just a couple reminders. We're having a great Tuesday night Bible study over in the cafeteria. I hope you'll join us. I think you'd really be encouraged by being there on Tuesday night. If you can't, please listen to the podcasts that are up. I think, again, it would be just a great encouragement for you. Also, the homeless ministry is going out next Saturday, so if you want to be a part of that or whatever, uh, that's still going to happen next Saturday, and we're going to meet with everyone that's interested or has been a part of that ministry in a couple weeks on the 24th of August, just to move forward from Mark stepping down as as the leader of that ministry uh, that he did such a great job with and seeing how that ministry is going to move forward. And speaking of August the 24th. Um, that's going to be a unique service. You know me, I I don't like us to get into ruts and routines because then things become, you know, sort of just, we can go through the motions. So every once in a while, I like to change things up. So Sunday, the 24th of August is going to be a totally different service than you've ever experienced at the Oasis. In fact, we've never done this before at the Oasis in the whole four and a half years we've uh, been here. And uh, I'm going to be speaking, obviously, that Sunday, but it's not going to be in Romans. We're going to finish Romans 8 next week. Then I'm going to suspend Romans for one week on the 24th, a special message on the 24th, and then we'll come back on the 31st and resume our series in the book of Romans. I will say this. You don't want to be late on August the 24th. I'll just say it that way, okay? Because at 10 o'clock, we are starting right in, and things are just going to roll a little bit differently that Sunday. All right. We are in this study, and we have come to Romans 8, where Paul has shared with the Christians in Rome, guys, learn to live in the Spirit. Learn to walk in the Spirit. Learn to lean on the Spirit of God who lives within you. Because he's saying, I discovered how different my life could be as a Christian when I learned to rely and depend upon the Spirit of God that was given to me to live inside of me. And when I learned to tap into the Spirit of God, my Christian life just totally took a whole different turn for the better. And so in Romans 8, he's just laying out for us all the advantages, if you will, of living by the Spirit, of living in the Spirit, of staying in tune with the Spirit of God who lives within us. And when we come now to Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 18, he wants to share some more with us. And what he's going to do in this passage from verses 18 through 30, the chapter or the passage we're going to cover today is he wants to remind us that when we live in the Spirit or by the Spirit, we're going to live more confidently. That God wants His people to live in this life confidently. 
even with all of the challenges, with all of the obstacles and opposition and everything that we see happening in the world today, if any group of people are to walk through this earth living confidently, it should be the followers of Jesus Christ. And he's going to, in a sense, unlock for us in this passage today how we can live more confidently even as a Christian. Because what I have discovered is that there are many Christians that struggle to live confidently in this world. And so I hope today, again, will be a great encouragement for you. One of the keys, again, to sort of unlock this entire passage is found in verse 18 with one word. And it's the second word in. He says, for, or third word in, excuse me. For I consider... That word is a key word in this passage. In fact, it reaches, if you will, all the way down through this passage. Everything that he's going to share with us, he wants us to understand, has to be considered. And let's stop for a moment and define what that word means. It means to take into account continually. In other words, it's not just a matter of I know something. I know this is what the Bible teaches. I know this is what God says. It's a matter of I have got to train, I've got to discipline my mind and my thinking and the focus of my life to take certain things into account continually. Then let's move on a little bit in this definition. I take these things into account continually having weighed the evidence and coming to a solid conclusion. In other words, the things that I'm taking into account continually are things that I have a strong conviction about. They are things that I am rock solid on through my own time with God, my own study, my own devotional time. I have come to solid conclusions about certain things that God has said. And those things now that I have come to a solid conclusion about, I am to take into account continually. They are to be at the forefront and focus of my mind all the time. I can't just, and again, live on the past fumes of, well, I knew those truths years ago and was taught them. I have to keep it current. I have to keep taking these things into account continually. A lot of us, where we struggle with that, though, is we struggle to even come to some solid conclusions about things. And therefore, because many Christians today don't have very strong convictions about much of anything, then it's hard to take things into account continually because we've got to really start with making sure that we are building strong convictions and conclusions based upon what God has said. That's why it's so important that we are in a church that teaches the word, that we are in the word, that we're in Bible studies and whatever, so that we can come to solid conclusions about things. And then out of that conclusion, I can take those things into account continually. And the first thing Paul says we should take into account continually as a Christian that will enable me to live more confidently are the promises of God. Notice what he says. I consider that our present sufferings, our anguish and pain, 
And so right there, though, first of all, he's telling us as Christians, oh, you're going to go through anguish and pain on this earth. That should be something that you and I take into account continually or else we will stop living confidently. See, when a Christian begins to suffer, some Christians' confidence is shaken because in their minds or maybe the way they were brought up or taught or whatever, that if I do everything right and I follow Christ, I won't suffer. I won't experience pain or anguish. So then when they do experience pain or anguish or something really bad happens to them, it shakes their confidence. They begin to think, well, did I do something wrong? Is God punishing me for something? Is that why I'm going through this? And that's why they begin to lose their confidence. No, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings. So he's saying, don't be surprised if as a Christian you suffer. And that message is really found throughout the New Testament. James says to Christians, why are you astonished when you fall into various trials? Uh, Peter talks about the reality of suffering. Jesus said, you'll suffer if you're a follower of mine. So all through the New Testament, it talks about suffering. And so one of the first things we have to take into account continually is we will suffer. If for no other reason, we will suffer for doing right every once in a while, and we will suffer for being a follower of Jesus Christ. But here's what he says we should continue to consider. Consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. Paul's saying, here's what you should take into account continually. That yes, we will go through anguish and pain and trial and suffering. Jesus even said, in the world, you will have tribulation and suffering, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. And Paul here is saying to the Romans, look, I'm not denying the reality of suffering. You who are Christians in the Roman Empire, you're going to suffer. Christians in every age have suffered. Christians in this age will suffer. But Paul says you and I have to take into account continually the promises of God. Promises upon which he's going to talk about our hope. And we're going to get to that in a minute. And part of those promises deal with our future glory. And always taking into account, not getting locked in mentally to what I'm going through here and now, but always being able through focusing on the promises of God to look past the current pressures and problems and trials and to look at what God has promised for me in the future and to always keep that in the forefront of my mind. And what Paul here is saying is this, not to discount the suffering that we go through, but he says if we truly considered it after weighing all the evidence and coming to this conclusion, he would say you could have a scale. And on that scale, you could put all the suffering you ever will experience in your whole earthly life. He said, I'm telling you that come eternity, that will add up to a grain of sand. Because he said on the other side of that scale is the glory that awaits us. And on that same scale, in comparison to that grain of sand, is Mount Everest. And he says, that's what we have to look at. That even if a Christian would suffer every day of their life and live to be a hundred earthly years, he says, do we not realize that our glory lasts forever? It's way past a hundred years. A million years from now, we'll still be basking in the glory 
2 million years from now, 10 million years from now. He says you cannot compare it to our present suffering. So he's saying, take into account these promises of God. Latch on to what God has for you in the future. The best for the Christian is always yet to come. That whatever we're going through even here on earth, there's always something better ahead for us that can't even be compared to what we're going through down here on this earth. That's what he wants us to lock into. That's how we can begin to live confidently rather than getting wrapped up in the earthly things that all of a sudden we begin to drown in these things and we lose sight of our future glory. Which is why he goes on to say, look, the creation even eagerly waits for the revelation of the Son of God. This creation has been put under a curse and creation itself, the animal kingdom, this, this earth, if you will, is crying out for deliverance. It is under a curse and it knows it, Paul said. Because he says the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility. This creation as we know it is unable to reach its goal or achieve its purpose. That's what the word futility means. Now, not willingly, but because God subjected it. But notice... He did so in hope. Hope that this creation, this earth, and you and I and any part of this creation, that this isn't the way it's always going to be. The word hope speaks about confident expectation about future good. And how can we be so confident about our future? Because God promised us that future. See, that's why we've got to lock in and take into account continually the promises of God. Because when we do that, that's when our hope meter, if you will, starts to increase. We start to lose hope, even as Christians, when we are not taking into account continually the promises of God. We begin to lose sight of what God has promised us. And therefore, we get so focused on the here and now... And that's why depression and discouragement and disillusionment and all these things can creep into our lives rather than confidence. Because we're not considering the promises of God. He says creation, verse 21, itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay. That word literally means to rot in the Greek language. It was a word used in Greek culture to speak of vegetables and fruit that had laid out too long and literally rotted. It speaks of slow deterioration. Paul's saying this creation, everything about this creation is on the slow deterioration stage. Everything is slowly rotting and deteriorating. But it's not always going to be that way, Paul said. So he says, It's going to be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom along with God's children. For we know that the whole creation groans, literally cries out for deliverance and suffers together until now. That's the reason why we see all the things in creation that we see today happening. Because creation itself is crying out for it to be delivered from the curse. Not only this, Paul says, but we ourselves also who have the first fruits of the spirit. Remember what the first fruits are of a harvest. They were always that first portion of the harvest that was a pledge of more to come. And Paul's saying, 
Part of why God gave us his spirit to live inside of us was that it was going to be a pledge of what's to come. That, that when we became a Christian and got saved and our sins were forgiven and we're on our way to heaven and we're placed into the body of Christ and all of those wonderful things. But Paul's saying, that's not the end. There's more to come. And we know that because of the Spirit of God who lives within us that witnesses to that every day of our lives. He goes on to say, who also groan inwardly. Well, can I tell you, the older I get, I not only groan inwardly, I groan outwardly. I'm just groaning, you know. And here's why, he says, because we eagerly await our adoption, sort of the finality of being adopted by God, the redemption or liberation of our bodies. Hallelujah! God isn't just about our spirit. He's about our body, which is why He promises us in the Bible that we will have a resurrected, glorified body to live all of eternity in. That will never suffer again, never go through pain, never have to die. All of that God has promised us. And that's why we can have hope. And that's what we should be taking into account continually, having come to that solid conclusion. For notice this great statement he makes in verse 24. In hope we were saved. Wow. Paul's saying... Look, when God saved you, He gave you hope through the Holy Spirit who lives within you. And that hope can stay alive and vibrant in us. But our responsibility, back up to verse 18, is that we've got to spend our life considering certain things. Taking those things into account continually that we've come to a solid conclusion and conviction about. And those things are the promises of God. God wants us to know and take into account His promises, especially His promises concerning our future. Let me challenge you today. One week, every day, part of the challenge Get up every day and write down what is one promise about my future that you're looking forward to. Every day, just write down one. One thing about what God has promised you for your future that you're looking forward to. Just try to do it for seven straight days and see if it doesn't start to change your perspective. And then he goes on to say, for in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? Who looks forward with confidence to what you already can see? But he says, if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with endurance. And that's an important word. It means to steadfastly and unflinchingly persevere when circumstances are difficult. God wants to build endurance and perseverance and steadfastness and stick to in our life. And how do we get that endurance? By clinging to hope. And how do we maintain our hope? By continually taking into account the promises of God. 
And living in that hope, that confident expectation of what God has promised me in my future. Paul says that's how you and I begin to live confidently in this life. Secondly, Paul says not only do I want you to take into account continually the promises of God, I want you to take into account continually the provision of God. Notice what he says in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He says, take into account that when God placed His Spirit in you, when God, the Spirit, came to live inside of you, He came to help. (laughs) The word literally means someone who comes along to support and help shoulder the load. Paul's saying, Christian... Whether it be in Rome or in Chandler, Arizona, he says, don't live one day, one hour, one minute trying to shoulder these loads on your own. You never have to. You shouldn't have to. God never meant for you to do that. God sent his spirit into your life so that he could help you in your weakness. And the word weakness there just simply means human limitations. Now, many many humans, they don't want to admit they're weak. They don't want to admit that they have limitations, even Christians. I can handle this on my own, God. I don't need your help. And then we wonder why Christians begin to just be crushed under the weight of life and everything after a while because they're trying to shoulder the load on their own. Paul's saying, Take into account His provision. The Spirit of God is inside of you to help you. Let Him help you. Acknowledge your weakness and your limitations and turn to the Spirit of God and say, Spirit, I need your help. And He'll be right there to help. He is our parakaleo, as Jesus called Him, our comforter, the one who comes alongside and helps. And then He goes on to say, not only does He help us in our weakness, He says there are many times as human beings, even, you know, faithful Christians, we don't know what we should pray. Don't be ashamed of being a Christian and being caught sometimes in a situation where you just throw your hand and go, I really don't know how I should be praying for this. That's okay. We're limited. We just see the tips of icebergs. We don't see the whole thing like God does. And God gets that. So God says, look, in those instances where you don't know what you should be praying for, know this, know the provision of God, know that the Spirit of God is going to intercede for you when you can't pray or don't know how to. Notice what he says. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. And by the way, that word intercede means to bring a petition on behalf of someone with urgency and intensity. I love that. It's not like the Spirit being God Himself, you know, goes to the Father and says, this Jeff character down there, he needs your help again. Now, even if that would be the case, which I'm sure it is many times, He goes to the Father and says, Jeff needs your help. He needs this Father. Help him. And notice 
Paul goes on to say he intercedes with inexpressible groanings. And he, the Father, who examines our hearts, knows the mind of the Spirit. Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, even though they are three distinct persons, are one. And so they always know, obviously, what each one is thinking. And so he says, you can be sure then that whatever the Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints, he will do so according to the will of God. See, God wants us to take into account the fact that we have promises. And we can live confidently by those promises. But he also says, I want you to take into account continually the provision of God. That he has given his very spirit, God himself, to live inside of you, to help you. And to intercede and pray for you when you don't even know what or how you should pray. And then, maybe the crowning of this provision is verse 28, when he says, and we know, and that word know means a settled intuitive knowledge. In other words, from God's perspective, if I truly am a Christian, this is something I know because God lives in me. It wasn't something I even had to be taught. It was something that I intuitively know because I'm connected with God. He says, and we know. That all things, not some things, not certain things, all things work together for good to those who love God. Now notice what he doesn't say in verse 28. He doesn't say that everything is good. He doesn't even say that God will somehow change my mind to make me think that the really bad, painful suffering and trial that I went through, that somehow that was good in and of itself. That's not what he's teaching. The word work is a key word here. It means, though, that when things happen to me out of my control, when I go through pain or suffering at the hands of others or just at the hands of being in a fallen world, that our God is so awesome, He is so great, that our God can take the yucky, painful, anguishing things that happen to us that are not our fault. And in time, God can create something that is beneficial profitable and useful to me out of it. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that he makes what was terrible somehow seem good to me. No, that's never the case. But when whatever is yucky merges with God, God can begin to bring something in my life profitable, beneficial, and useful out of it. That's what the word good means. And he says, that's a provision we should take into account continually. Because there will be some anguish and pain and suffering that we go through. Paul says, I get it. But Paul says, here's the thing I need to take into account continually as a Christian so that I can live confidently. That whether I've done something to myself or whether someone else has done something to me or whether it's just, again, part of living in a fallen world, if I look to God... I know that God can bring something useful, profitable, and beneficial out of it. And that's how I can live confidently in this fallen world. Because God provides for me that ministry. 
God provides for me help through His Spirit. God's Spirit will intercede on my behalf. And Paul says, if I want to live confidently as a Christian, I not only have to take into account continually His promises, but His provision. And then finally, I need to take into account His purpose. Notice what Paul says as we move on through verse 28. He says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. First thing I want you to notice there is the word purpose is singular, not plural. It doesn't say we are called according to God's purposes. It says we are called according to God's purpose. In other words, God has one overarching purpose. For you and me. We've got to keep that in mind. God has one overarching purpose in my life. What is that purpose? Paul tells us. Because those he foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That is God's one overarching purpose in every Christian's life. Not to make me happy. Not to make me wealthy. Not to make me comfortable. Remember, God's love is not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. God has one overarching purpose in every Christian's life. It is to make us to resemble and be similar to our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the early Christians, before they were called Christians, they weren't called anything except bad names. And then all of a sudden there were these people who weren't Christians because in the early days of the church, people didn't call themselves Christians. They would never presume to do that. Unlike we today just, you know, call ourselves Christians. No, that term needed to be earned. And it was earned when other people who weren't Christians looked at the way these people lived, the way they talked, the way they walked, how they acted and reacted, and they said, that person reminds me of that Jesus. They resemble, they're, they're similar to Jesus. And they called them Christians. When God sends His Spirit into our lives and saves us, He has one purpose in mind. To make us like Jesus. And by the way, I want to finish this out and then go back. That purpose, my friends, will not be thwarted. By you, by me, by anyone. He goes on to say, And those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He glorified. In other words, Paul's saying and reassuring the Romans, this purpose for every true Christian will not be thwarted. Because notice who the object is in verse 29 and 30. It's God. The subject is us. And notice that every verb is in the past tense as if it's already happened. Because God said it's going to happen. And if God said it's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's part of that hope that we can have. 
That's why Paul could say to the Philippians, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's why John could say, we don't know everything about what our future holds, but I know this, when we see Jesus, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Now listen, there's a lot of diversity amongst Christians even. And even in eternity, as I have taught from the Word of God, there's going to be a lot of difference between certain Christians as far as their rewards and other Christians and certain Christians based upon their faithfulness and commitment and devotion. Their role and responsibility throughout eternity is going to be different than other Christians. But there is going to be one thing that is exactly the same for every true Christian that's ever been born again. And that is this, that every true Christian will one day be totally conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's his purpose, my friends. And why we have to continually take that into account in our lives is for this reason. Because if you and I have a different purpose for our lives than being more like Jesus, guess what's going to happen? Pretty soon, even as a Christian, I'm going to get frustrated. I'm going to get disillusioned. I might get angry with God. I might become bitter because all of a sudden I'm trying to make the purpose of my life the pursuit of this. And God is working all the time to make me more like Jesus. And that's why if something comes into my life and it's, you know, something like suffering or pain that God knows, you know what, I know this is painful, child, but I can use this to make you more like Jesus. If our pursuit of our life isn't to be more like Jesus, then when something like that comes into our life, it just blows us up. That's why many Christians even walk away from God and walk away from the church and whatever, because they can't reconcile the things that God allows in their life with their own pursuit of what they want the purpose of their life to be. And God has said... I tell you what my overarching purpose is for your life. It's to make you like Jesus. And I will do anything and everything I can do in your life to make you more like Jesus. And if you just get on board with my purpose for your life, then you will find you won't be so conflicted about the things that happen to you or what I allow in your life. Because you'll know that all things can work together for good to those who love God. And that God's primary purpose in my life isn't, again, to make me happy, to make me comfortable, to make me wealthy. God's one overarching purpose in all of our lives is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying to the Roman Christians and saying to us today, unless we take the promises of God continually into account, unless we take the provision of God continually into account, unless we take the purpose of God continually into account, we'll never walk as confidently as we could otherwise. Now, a few minutes ago, I asked you for seven days to write down something, some promise of God about your future that you could write down. I want to give you two more in line with today. The second thing is, would you for a week, along with that one promise, write down 
one provision of God and thank Him for that provision, whether it's one that was included here in Romans 8, like, thank you, God, that the Spirit of God intercedes for me. Maybe it's the Bible. Maybe it's your church family, whatever. If every day you would take into account one promise, one provision, and then finally, every day for a week, would you be willing to write down what the one overarching purpose of God is for your life and mine? And write that down. And before you even start out your day, you will follow Paul's instructions. You will say, I'm going to consider today, God, before I enter into this day, your promise, your provision, and your purpose for my life. And see if just after a week, the confidence with which you walk through the day with doesn't change just ever so slightly. And if you like what the week did, then I'd encourage you to turn it into a month. And if you like that, turn it into a year. Let's pray. As our worship team comes, we're going to end with two songs actually today again. The first is a song sort of of celebration. Looking at the promises and provision of God. The second is going to be a song of contemplation. Where we truly consider other aspects of God and how we can live more confidently. And I just want to ask us as a church today, would we truly take to heart what Paul has shared with us here today? Will we begin to consider these truths and make them a part of our everyday life? Whether they be a promise, a provision, or God's purpose, God can use it to change our lives, to set us free, to walk more confidently and assuredly in this ever-changing world that is crying out for deliverance, that cannot reach its intended goal or purpose because we live in a fallen world. But you and I, we can begin to achieve that purpose through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God, go with us through this time of, of celebration and contemplation. Help us to rejoice, Lord, in you and in who we are in you, God. And may it change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. And as we sing...